You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. GGTMC listeners, this is Rupert. Um, I had the honor uh, this week of talking to one of my favorite directors, Alan Arkish. Um, he's the director of Rock and Roll High School and Heartbeeps and Get Crazy. And uh, I was lucky enough to get to talk to him about um, all those movies in this interview and his sort of his career in general. Um, and then got to hear him just talk about his favorite films and books and things like that it's it's a really enjoyable interview and i had a great time doing it um have to apologize for to alan for the phone call that comes in the middle of the interview i forgot to unplug my home phone um so that's kind of annoying but um he didn't really miss a beat uh despite that interruption but uh anyway uh let me get you right to it um i hope you enjoy it so um Rock and Roll High School just showed up on Blu-ray for the first time uh, just recently, just a couple weeks ago, which I was very excited about. And uh, I was wondering, uh, has it surprised you, the staying power that that movie's had? Oh, well, yes, it absolutely has surprised me that, you know, it's still popular today. It's probably, well, it's certainly more popular than it ever was because people keep seeing it again and again and keep enjoying it again and again. So that's, that's amazing in that in the long it, in the long run it's probably the most successful movie that Roger Corman has ever produced oh I didn't uh, know that you know I mean because don't forget up to a certain point all Roger's revenues were theatrical that's right uh, and if you look at theatrical movies it might be Eat My Dust or one of the one of the New World pictures but when you add in the fact that you go to DVDs and VHS and Laserdiscs and then uh, cable TV airings, then Rock and Roll High School has got to be in the top two or three. Oh, that's Because, great. you know, it's just sold so many DVDs over the years. It's, once the drought, there was this huge drought from when it was on, when it came out, it was on VHS on his deal with Warners. Yeah, that was and a then really... I guess about, Sorry. You know, then I guess about 10 or 15 years went by when it wasn't available, um... I think it was in the late 90s that they put it out on Laserdisc again. Um, and I guess they put out a new VHS and eventually DVD. And then from then on, it was in all the record stores, it was in all the video stores. <laughs> so there's been two or three editions since then. Yeah, I bought every one of those editions myself. Oh, thank you. I'm a huge, well, huge I, fan. You, you know, I think that the new one is by far the best edition. Yeah, it you looks know? gorgeous, by the way. The yeah, Blu-ray looks great. Really beautiful. I thought that the first Laserdisc edition, that edition, was excellent because it had the really good the commentary. That was the first time we did a commentary. And it had uh, the commentary turned out really well on that. That's the one with me and Richard Whitley and Mike Fennell. Yes. Um, and since we hadn't seen the movie in a while, it, all, it made us laugh a lot and we enjoyed the movie doing it. Yeah. Uh, also had the nice, a really nice essay that Richard wrote with uh, Russ. Uh, Devon, to, you know, they wrote the, the final drafts of the picture. So they wrote a really nice essay in that edition, and then I wrote a letter in that. But all those, everything, 
everything is in this edition. Yeah, it's you know? it's so comprehensive. I just I I was just so knocked out to see all that good stuff from all those other editions on this one disc. Yeah, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to do that, you know. Yet they had all these different commentaries. Luckily, the the uh, people at um, uh, what's the name of the company? Shout Factory. Uh, at Shout Factory. Their legal department were just terrific about letting us put a lots of our personal photos in there, oh. you know, and all of that was just really good because they, you know, when you work, the Buena Vista edition was a disaster. I mean, the documentary was not bad, but getting them to put any new materials in was a pain, and they, the cover was awful, and, <laughs> you know, they, they used the same tribute to Joey. That was in the previous edition, and John had died, and Dee had died, so it was really insulting. Yeah, you know, you know just, it just was very haphazard. But this edition is wonderful. Well, it's so neat that that Shout Factory was so cool about all that stuff. I, I, I recently talked to Joe Dante about matinee and his experience with Universal and how sort of poorly that went, and he couldn't even get the Mant special feature or whatever uh, feature thing that he had on the disc because of music problems, and their lawyers didn't like. The music, yeah. they're much more conservative lawyers, so it sounds like with everything being as litigious as it is, it's pretty great that a company like Shout Factory is so cool about that stuff. They did a great job, plus when they put it together, they put it, it feels like the same, a continuation of the spirit of the movie, you know? Yeah. And and that's really nice. It, it doesn't feel different than the movie. It feels like it's all of a piece, and so that's really nice. Yeah, and I gotta say, Alan, in, I just showed it, just watched it a couple, when it came out, actually, the, I think the day after I got it, you know, the day after it came out, and I showed it to my son, he's 11, and uh, and he really liked it a lot, but I just was so charmed, I mean, I, I've always loved the movie, but each time it seems to be something that, it just charms me even more. I was just, I was just like, at the end, I just had a smile on my face during all the musical numbers, I was getting tingles, it's just... Uh, such a wonderful movie, I gotta say. Yeah, I got you know when I look back at it, and I don't watch it very often. You know, if I if there's some event, I, I'll come in at the end. You know. Yeah. Um, but it's it's really when I look at it now, it's sort of of a piece. You know, and it really does capture a feeling that you're at a Ramones concert, which is also really nice. I want it. And I constantly work with people who all, you know, will be working on some TV show or something I'm doing, and they'll to go, you know, I just realized you're the guy who directed Rock and Roll High School. They've been really nice about it, you know. And I can tell from the way they're saying it that the movie has meant a lot to them, or they really love the movie, or they're just surprised that they're working with the guy who made it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a true classic. I mean, I think it's going to continue to inspire and, and, you know, charm people forever, for just such a long time. I was going to say, now, I think you mentioned in one of the special features, uh, maybe about, did, did they, didn't they do a screening at Synespia at the Hollywood Cemetery? Yes, that was one of the best screenings I've ever been to of it. That yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, wasn't that, I mean, the, I'm sorry. That was the first screening they did of it at the cemetery. They played it really loud. Um <laughs> You know, normally, you know, when you watch your work with an audience, you want everyone paying attention and all this kind of stuff. You know, but uh, the movie's played for so long. The audience was talking and laughing and joking among themselves. And it was more like a concert than it was a, uh, a screening. It was great. 
Oh, I wish I could have been there. I'm a regular attendee to Senespia, but I couldn't make it out that weekend, sadly. And it sounds like such a good time. It's such a great atmosphere to see a movie in. I was trying to describe it to my son. I'm like, you know, we go to see a movie for the first time, and it's a bunch of people that haven't seen the movie before. But when you go to this, it's a bunch of people that already really like the movie, so you can feel yeah. that love for the movie in the crowd. And I think that's such a neat feeling. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so I wanted to talk to you about... <clears throat> Um, one of your more obscure movies, and and um, I know you said you're not a big fan of it, but I I, I just I watched this literally last night, also with my son, um, and it's Heart Beeps, and so I just was curious, like if you could walk me through, you 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 finished Rock and Roll High School, I think it did really well for Roger. How do you get to the place where in '81 or '80 you're making this movie for Universal? Well. Um it was kind of doing, Rockwell High School was doing better at midnight than anywhere else. So, and I was still kind of working for Roger and Eddie. We were just trying to find another job. And uh, I guess I had, there was a little bit of buzz about the movie, and I took some meetings, and I went to this meeting um, over at Universal with Michael Phillips, who was the producer of Heartbeeps. And they gave me the script to read, and it was so unlike anything I'd done. And there was a night, there was a sweetness to it, and I loved the love story aspect of it. And you know, it was science fiction. I'd never done science fiction. But I think what appealed to me about it was the love story aspect of it and the purity of the, of the love story. And there was a sweetness to it, and it reminded me of a, like a Frank Borzaghi silent movie, you know, cool. or it had a certain quality to it. So I met, and I look, Michael Phillips had produced Taxi Driver and Close Encounters. Yeah. That and so he was a, and, and The Sting, so he was a big, big producer. Um, and he was a young guy, and, you know, uh, I had friends who had worked at Universal. In retrospect, I probably was brought in because I knew Sean, um, Sean Daniels, who was an executive over there. We had met socially and stuff, and Sean had been the executive on Animal House, so I knew John Landis. And oh, John, okay. they were doing they were doing Blues Brothers, and John and Sean had come to early screening of Rock and Roll High School, um, and so that's why I probably got the meeting, and, and I decided to make the movie. Now, in retrospect, I was too, and I don't mean this in any bad way, I was too respectful of the material. Okay. I think that what happened was. I let the material take me to a place which I, which was different from what they were expecting of me. Oh, they you really know, wanted you done, to make it your own. Yeah, no, here I had done all these Roger Corman movies that had enormous energy to them, and a, a sort of a somewhat anarchic feel and so forth. And, he, and I decided I was going to do this heartbeat movie in a style that was not something I'd ever done before. I mean, at that point, I hadn't done very much, but I was doing it like an old movie, you know, like a, like I said, like a silent movie, like some 30s love story, you know, a 20s movie made in the 20s, you know, very gentle. And that was the wrong, that may have been right for the material as it existed, but it was wrong for the overall movie. Okay. You know, yeah. for overall, I should have shaken the whole thing up. If I was going to end up with Andy Kaufman, I should have let Andy Kaufman be more Andy Kaufman and made that robot have a multiple personalities, you know, ah. and made the whole thing a lot 
crazier, you know, so a you, lot, a lot more irreverent. Did you did you rein Andy in a lot? I mean, how did you direct him? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to do the script. Gotcha. Which was a very sweet small script. Uh, and adding to that was the fact that now I was making a movie with people who weren't my peers. Yeah. And I had only worked in my peer group. You know, now I was working at a studio with people who were studio people. They had been in the business far, far longer than I had. And this was just another movie to them that they were working on. And every time I'd ask for something, I was taken aback by how much it would cost. Oh, wow. Whereas, you know, and so I was having trouble adjusting to that. You know, and the crew were all good Hollywood professionals, but they were, I was like the youngest person on the crew practically, <laughs> you know? And there was no women on the crew. It was just a very different experience from working on a Corman movie. Yeah. And I, did, I tried to do a good job for them, but it was the wrong interpretation, and I wasn't experienced enough to see that. And the way that I shot the movie was just kind of slow and stodgy for me. And I never felt like, it's funny, my wife said, you know, it doesn't feel like you're really in control out there. You know, the whole machinery of it was driving me. And ultimately, after the preview, they hated my approach. They took the movie away from me and we cut the movie. Oh, I was going to ask you about that, because in watching it last night, you know, there's the part, and I don't want to spoil the movie, because I really think people should see it, but... um, the, there's the part where there's the ending sort of feels tacked on. Like, there was a lot of material lost there, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, they, they really chopped it up. I directed it far too slow. I just wasn't experienced enough, you know. With Rock and Roll High School, it had been something that had been so close to me, you know, and was in a world that I knew so well, that the energy of the movie and the pace of the movie and the shots seemed to dictate things very clearly. And here was something I was labored to get it, and I was kind of insecure, and I didn't take advice. Uh, and ultimately, after they saw the movie, they took it away from me. And, you know, I had no, I wasn't allowed to make any decisions. And Verna Fields recut the picture. And, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And I saw it in the theater, and it did a horribly in the theater, and I couldn't stand looking at it. And I don't think I've seen it since the, the day I saw it in the movie theater in New York City. Well, yeah, I totally don't blame you. That sounds like a really terrible experience. You know, it's... It was, yeah, it was an awful experience. It's too bad, because, like, what's there, I mean, even with the tacked-on ending, I mean, I know it's not your full vision, but it's still a really, um, it's a really cute story, and I really like it. And I was going to say, I was watching it last night, and I was thinking, I couldn't help but think that the Pixar guys, and again, not to get too carried away with this, but they definitely looked at this movie uh, during the production of WALL-E. There's no, there's no question, you know. Well, I, was, I was also overwhelmed by the technology of it. You know, in those days, the robots were all done with remote control things, and they didn't always work. And I really didn't understand. I wasn't a big fan of movie makeup and knew very little about it. And here I was working with the great Stan Winston. And Stan and I just did not see eye to eye. Uh. You know, I just didn't take advantage of what was there. And it was all, it was a, it ended up being a bad marriage. It's too, it's really too bad because there's a lot of great stuff there. There's you and then you've got John Williams doing the music. You've got Albert Whitlock. You know, I mean, there's yeah. so much but of Michael Phelps. All those people, yeah, I didn't control the situation. And I didn't make a movie that was more true to what my abilities as a movie maker, you know. 
Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, moving on. Sorry. Um, I, I still really yeah. like it. My son really liked it, too, actually. I asked him to score exactly. the movie last night, and he's like, I give it 9 out of 10. Like, he really <laughs> he really dug it. So, anyway, um, so you go from that, and that's in 81, and then the next film you make is Get Crazy, which is another movie I'm a fan of. Now, how did that come about? What's the evolution between well, those two then films? Then I realized that I had to get back and do something I knew something about, you yeah. know. And so I wanted to make a movie about my experiences at the Fillmore East. You know, on the stage crew and so forth. And so I went to a bunch of meetings and um, I pitched it to this company named Sherwood Productions, I think they were called. And they thought it was a good idea. And they had internal meetings and they said, well, we think it's interesting, but we want it to be kind of more of a comedy like airplane. Ah. You know? So they wanted a more anarchic airplane Kyle comedy. And that was their rule that they gave me of how they were going to make it. And that didn't seem like a bad idea, you know? Um, so well, what it did was it pulled the movie in a direction that made it less of an accessible story. And I wasn't a particularly good storyteller yet. And I was trying to tell the story of the guy on the stage crew, and I never quite got the script where I wanted it to be. And we tried to do various drafts of the script. And also, I wanted to work with friends of mine because I wanted to be protected. And it was hard. They all had different projects. And finally, a guy I'd worked with, Hunt, produced Hunt Lowry, did a nice job producing it. But the problem was that the company itself was run by all these money guys, David Beagleman and, and Bruce McNall. And they were, they were half, they weren't honest, you know. Ah. They, they were, they made a lot of money on the silver exchange. They made a lot of money moving money around. Um, David Beagleman, you know, his name is always associated with, you know, dealings and stuff, you know, that are not on the up and up. And so I made the movie and, and as I was prepping the movie or making or getting ready to shoot it, they made a distribution deal with a company and that company gave them notes and they said, well, do their notes. It's like, what? I don't, even, I, I don't even know the person that gave me these notes, oh. you know, which was very different. And then, well, that deal fell apart, so don't do those notes. So <laughs> it was one of those situations where they didn't really, they were just trying to make the deals. And after the preview, they gave me a real hard time, and they were going to recut the movie, and a friend of mine who was who developed it at the company, a missile background, warned me, and I wrote them a letter because I was out of town, and they told me they wouldn't cut it, and we went back and forth, and ultimately they kind of sold it off to a, it was almost like the producers. Oh, they, wow. they were going to make more money by having the movie lose money as a tax shelter. And they sold it off to a tax shelter group, and they basically did everything they could to bury the movie. They would have a critic screening, and then they canceled the screening at the last last half hour. All the critics would show up, and there'd be no movie. They take an ad out, but they wouldn't open the movie. They'd open it a week later. The idea was to make no money. Wow. Um, and it opened in New York. I, they never even told me. Oh, jeez. And then like a year or two later, I get a phone call from this guy, who I don't know who it is, who talks to me and says, well, that he was one of the people who ran the investment group with a tax shelter thing that happened. And he wanted to talk to me next time I was in New York, so I went and met with him. And here was these people that put up this money, you know, because they liked the movie, and then they realized that they had been scammed, you know. And so that's why it's not anywhere. And today, they can't find the, uh, I mean, they, 
whatever Sherwood Productions had made, they then they kept shifting around to different companies, to Avco, I think distributed for a while, Dino De Laurentiis owned it for a while. Different people owned it, and so no one knows where the materials are. Oh. So it may never be on DVD. Oh, that's such but a terrible... They, yeah, because a couple of times they tried to find the um, um, soundtrack, and they couldn't. Uh, so they can't find the original mag mix track, which we spent a lot of time doing, which was in smoke, you know, Dolby Stereo and all that stuff. Um, you know, I... And looking back at it, I wish I could make it again. <laughs> that's that's, you know? that's so sad. About the way it really happened. To make it about my life at the Fillmore East and my life in college. And I actually tried to do something like that on several occasions and never could get it off the ground. But that would have been, you know, a better approach. Well, I mean, it, it definitely has that that <clears throat> that anarchic feeling. I guess I could say more than maybe Heartbeeps does. I mean, it feels more like Rock and Roll High School than... Yeah, it, it's a movie that has... Uh, my line always about that movie is it has 1,500 punchlines and only 1,000 jokes, you know? <laughs> and I mean, you know what? It was fun to make. Uh, I got to work with Malcolm, which was just terrific, you know, um... The editing team are all we're all friends of mine. I got Ralph Rosenblum came out, the great editor of the Woody Allen movies, our editing oh, wow, supervisor. I that. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he's in the credits. It was great. Um, so all that was kind of cool. The music numbers are fun. I made a lot of friends. People are friends for life. People seem to enjoy making it. I have mixed feelings about the movie. Some of it I don't like mm -hmm. at all. And they recently had a screening of it here in L.A. and the audience loved it. And you know, I still feel the same way about it. I like about a third of it. So. <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. I really, I just yeah, watched it, it again this it week. And, and I know a ton of people, including the guys that run this podcast, are, are big fans of the movie. Um, it's really, so, as far as I understand, it's it's very much rooted in, in, in a lot of factual stuff, like characters are based oh, yeah. on amalgamations or ba events are based on stuff that really happened. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, so what's... It was also, it's also there was the guy who was the sort of producer at Sherwood just kind of felt like he was kind of a jerk uh -huh. and he felt that his job was to argue with me about everything <sighs> and it's interesting because I brought Joe Dante over there for a meeting and Joe just like, left the meeting and said he's an idiot I never want to speak to this guy again <laughs> you know um, and I was in there already into it with him but for instance I want the Jerry Orr back to play Bill Graham and they said no to that. So then we went through all these things. We ended up with Alan Gerwitz, who was completely wrong. Oh, you know? really? Okay. You know, I wanted Tom Hanks to play the lead. They didn't want Tom Hanks. They thought that people remember he was that guy in drag and Bosom Buddies, you know. It was like, every, I wanted, um, for this little sister, I wanted, uh, she's a star of Law & Order SVU, Maris, uh, Mariska Hargitay. You know, okay. so everything that I wanted, they would argue with me about. You know, so then we'd have to go to a list, and we'd end up compromising. And uh, because of the, and that seemed to be what their job was. Wow. You know. Well, that's terrible. They, I mean, yeah, it's too. You know what's interesting though is, I mean, despite all that, I still. And I know you said you you fan of about a third of it. It's still, I think, a really enjoyable film. And a yeah. lot of people still love it. So it's pretty. It's quite a tribute to you as a filmmaker that your spirit comes through so much in a film that it just really grabs people, even despite yeah, all the and, crap. And 
you know, I really like the Lou Reed stuff in it. I think the Nada stuff is hilarious. Yes. Uh, Lee Ving is great in it. You yes. Know. <laughs> Reggie Wanker stuff is hilarious, you know. Uh, Malcolm is really good. You know, so there's stuff in it that I like a lot. It's just a main story. It's so weak, yeah. you know. And the whole love story aspect of it is completely unbelievable, you know, <laughs> and not grounded in anything. So. Well, I, I, but, I still feel like it works inside of that sort of spoofy yeah. universe that you set up, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's just because it feels like... Like, I know you were a big fan of Frank Tashlin, and yeah. so when I'm watching it, I'm, I know that you'd said that Airplane was something they called out, but I'm thinking Tashlin, and, you know, yeah. it, it just it had well, that, that feeling. You know, well, exactly, because, you know, when they pushed the buttons towards the Airplane-style comedy, I went towards Hell's a Poppin' and Tashlin. Nice. That's right? great. When, when the movie really kind of wanted to make would be my version of Diner in the Fillmore East. Oh, wow. See, that's such a cool movie. Like, when you say that right away, I'm like, wow, I really want to see that movie. It was was a very, I mean, it was a golden part of my life. Here I was going to NYU film school and studying film school with Marty Scorsese, you know, and working at the Fillmore East and seeing the Lou and and Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead and all those bands. And that was my life on the Lower East Side during that period. It's like I was plunked down in the middle of something that was so vital. And um, that's what I wish I could make a movie about. <laughs> have you ever, have you, you said you've tried a few times. Is it something you might yeah, still do? Yeah, you know, no one wants to do that. You know, I'm not powerful enough to get it done. So I'm kind of writing it as, you know, when I have time, I sit down and putting it in a loop in a book form or something you know well that's cool i mean that's a book i'll certainly buy but uh you know yeah. if it ever came to fruition as a movie i mean another movie i would be just so excited to see uh, it would be great to make it <laughs> um okay well so so get crazy let me just we'll talk about one more um uh sort of i'm sure it wasn't a good experience but i'm just curious about it uh in in 88 you 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 you're on caddyshack 2 like what? What? I'm always curious about the evolution. Like, how does you? How do you go from Get Crazy to Caddyshack to? Like, you did some TV movies and some TV shows, I think, well, in between. Basically, after Get Crazy, it was I was out of work, so I started doing some rock videos with my friend Terry Schwartz, who worked at New World Pictures. Um, and Terry was working for a commercial filmmaker as a producer of commercials, and we started. And we were very close. And she's now the dean of the UCLA Film School. Of the whole UCLA film and theater. Wow. So Terry and I started doing rock videos. We did Elvis Costello. Uh, we did Bette Midler and Mick Jagger. We did um, Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac. We, we, had, we were very successful at it. And somewhere along in that process, um, someone was making a pilot uh, called Summer. Uh, and what it was was a high school show. And that was at MGM Television, and the producer of it was a guy by the name of Don Rio. And Don has gone on to become an enormously successful TV producer. And I guess what had happened was that every director they had gone to with the summer pilot, who had done pilots, was turned down. You know, had turned it down, didn't want to do it. And they were getting down the list of people they were not happy about. So they said, well, let's think something differently. Who's, let's think of someone who's done a good high school project. And I guess my name came up, nice. you know, because of Rock and Roll High School. Now, I didn't know any of this, but I get a call from someone who says they're my TV agent at William Morris. And she said, do you want to do this pilot? And they, 
you know, I had never thought about it, you know, and, but I wasn't working. And so I went and took the meeting. We talked about it. And I thought, you know, how hard could this be? <laughs> so I took the job. And they, Don was great. They were really happy with it. I thought that the crew itself was, didn't have that heart in it. It was a very low-budget pilot. And I thought that the crew was kind of cheesy. I think the cameraman... I didn't like him much. You know, I didn't have any choice over this. They were really, now that I look back at it, they were, they were the kind of guys who were just, I call them lifers, you know? Oh, okay. They don't watch what they make. They're not really inspired. But anyway, I made this little pilot. I got it done on schedule. And the weirdest thing, we had to reshoot a whole day's work on it because the T-shirt had um, a skull on it. They're worried that it would offend the network. Oh, my gosh. This guy was a metal fan. He had a skull on his T-shirt, of course. <laughs> Well, anyway, we make the thing, and, you know, they did another cut of it, and it's all that, you know, that normally happens. In any case, um, it didn't sell. But they were very happy with what I did. They thought it was really imaginative. And out of nowhere, I got a phone call that I want to come in and um, talk about directing Fame, the TV series Fame. That's right. That's right. Okay. Because that was an MGM series, and it was a syndicated show, so I... It's a long way around to Caddyshack. But anyway. No, I want to hear this. This is great. Okay, so I go to take this meeting. Uh, and well, first of all, I'd never seen the show. So the same agent who had, you know, called me, said, you know, calls me up and says, you know, MGM was really happy and they got fame and they're thinking they want to, maybe you should track fame. And, you know, because the same thing had happened. The people with fame wanted to get someone who knew how to do music. So Rock and Roll <laughs> High School came up again. And, oh, let's have that guy. And, you know, let's meet with him. So they sent me a couple of copies of the show. I watched it, and I go into the meeting, and I have, no, you know, not really a lot of interest in doing this thing, which is a good thing, because when they asked me what I thought of their show, they said, well, do you think you can direct our show? I said, I, if I could stay awake, I could direct it. Because <laughs> you know? it was so slow, and it was show tunes, you know? Yeah. And there it, it, it was a ballet in it, which I thought was really cool. But I said, you know, you guys are not integrating the songs into the story. You're doing a music number at the beginning, a music number at the end, and the music that you're using, it's like in a time capsule. You know, MTV is out there. You know, people it's hip-hop music. Music is much different than what you're portraying. It's so old and stodgy, you know. And the camera doesn't move enough, and this and that, and it's got no energy. And we had a really nice long meeting and I left and then my agent calls and said, I don't know what you said to them, but they just offered you three episodes. <laughs> so I went on that show and that was a great thing for me. I got along with everyone. They loved my input on the music. They loved the fact that because it had been a syndicated show, I don't know if you remember what the TV landscape was like in the mid 80s, but there was the network and then there was nothing. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was the three networks, and so shows, there were no cable stations, there was none of that. And Fame was on the air because it had failed as a network show, but they liked the franchise, so MGM financed it and sold it to individual stations each week. Wow. They like, would make a deal, and they'd sell it overseas and individually, which mean, meant that the show had to be made without a deficit. Oh. Right? Because there was no other partner. They were, they were not getting a license fee from someone. They were paying for everything. So they would, we would do these shows for $750,000, which is nothing. Yeah. You know? We used old Mitchell cameras, 
not even Aeroflex, you know, big old cameras, and we shot it all on stage, and we had a really tight budget. We shot it in seven days, and that's and it would play on in L.A., and most of the country would play on Sunday nights at around 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock. It was aimed at a young audience. And I was feeling very, about my career, very depressed. Um, because my feature opportunities, I had blown, I felt two of them, you know. And here I was doing this show, which no one was watching. If I would ask my friends to watch it, they'd watch something, oh, it's cute, but we went out to dinner, because that's the time it was on, you know. Oh, and geez. nobody, nobody I knew was watching it. And all my good friends were having a lot of success. John the Kaplan, Joe Dante, had done Gremlins, you know. And here I was doing this TV show, you know, which no one was seeing. And it was in the second season of my work on the show that I went and shot in New York on it. Because they would go uh, to New York for like three or four weeks and shoot parts of episodes. And everywhere we went in New York, there was these huge crowds of kids. <laughs> and the kids were connecting, not because they were movie stars in the show, but because the show meant a lot to them. And the characters meant a lot to them. And it really made me feel differently about what I was doing. I realized that, because it's a hard thing in television, you don't know your, you don't see your audience. You know, now it's very different, you know, because you have online, you know, what everyone thinks. Then it was like you saw it at home and you, you know, and the show's over, it goes to commercial and that's it, you know. <laughs> um, you never get any feedback, except if that's someone you know sees it. Um, so... All of a sudden, I realized who I was making that show for, and I felt a lot better about it. And also, my agent was able to get me a network show. Basically, it had gone well on fame, and she said, are there any other shows you want to do? And I was still being a wise ass. I was not happy with doing television. I said, well, I would like to, I wouldn't do a show that I wouldn't watch, which actually turned out to be the smartest thing I could have said. She said, so what do you watch? And I said, I love saying elsewhere. And it took her oh, nice. almost a year, and she got me a job on St. Elsewhere. And it went really well. I mean, after the first day's daily, they offered me another episode. Oh. And then there was another show that was starting up that was looking for directors who were kind of outside the box a little bit. And that was Moonlighting. So That's I started right. trying to job on that. So I'm doing Moonlighting. And you have to understand that the directors who were doing fame, aside from myself, were like one guy who was... A good director, but most of his credits were shows like Bonanza. So when I came in and was doing a, the style of how I shoot, it was such a big contrast. The cast and crew loved me. The crew didn't love me so much. The crew <laughs> thought I was nuts. But the cast loved me, you know, and the producers loved me. The crew just thought I was eccentric and didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't a TV veteran yet. I wasn't efficient, you know, and I had wacky ideas, you know, and they didn't like the new producers on fame. They felt that they're taking the show in a direction that they didn't like. But anyway, it was fame did so much better once I got on it. So then from fame was saying elsewhere, and then uh, LA Law, and then they did a pilot called the Bronx Zoo, and then I did Moonlight, right? And so meanwhile, I still wanted to make a movie, you know? I was doing the television stuff because I prefer, you know, I was really wanted to make a movie, and Moonlight, I couldn't be on a more successful show than Moonlight. It was just an unbelievable smash. It was a great but show, too. I really remember liking it a lot. It was a great, great show. And in the midst of that, 
I was contacted by the National Lampoon people about doing a Lampoon movie because it was a franchise they had. And I had turned down a bunch of movies. One of one of the movies I turned down because I thought it was a really a dumb idea was Police Academy. <laughs> you know, but you know what? It could have. I just didn't want to make a movie I thought would fail. You know. So they offered you Police Academy. The very first one. Yeah. So I'm kidding. No one heard. It was just a stupid Police Academy movie. <laughs> you know. And the one that I really wanted to do, which I didn't get, because I gave him too many notes, was Revenge of the Nerd. Oh wow! I thought that was a really good idea. But all the notes that I gave it would have made the characters too individual and probably would have taken away from the fartiness and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. On the, you know. In any case... Um, well, wow, that's a movie I'd really love to see, the Alan Arkish version of Revenge of the Nerds. That's yeah, cool. yeah. They, they were all very talented at one thing. I thought that was what was missing in, in their script, was that everyone was, was a mess in their script completely. And I always felt that a nerd was someone who's always good at one thing. The exclusion of all else, you know. Yeah. But anyway, they didn't see my point of view. But <laughs> and then so I started developing this lampoon movie, right? As my way out of doing just television, and that was going to be Lampoon Goes to College. It was kind of lampooning the college interview process, the college campus visits, all of that stuff, right? And we never quite got the script right. And, but the people of Warner Brothers liked me, and we were developing it. And then when that didn't go, they decided they, were, they had Caddyshack 2 in development. And Harold Ramis didn't want to direct it. And I don't think they could get Rodney Dangerfield. But they, Cooper and Peters pushed it through. And so they called me up, and I came in and met on it. And the script was kind of a mess, but they were going to do a rewrite. And so I said yes to the job because I thought... It would push me into a level of comedy directors by having me work with with uh, Chevy Chase and you know and Dan Aykroyd and all these and Gruber and Peters. It would move me up in the world, you know. Yeah. And that was the wrong reason to make the movie. You know, I was doing it more as a career move as opposed to something that I've learned since which is never make a movie unless you feel you can make this movie better than anyone on earth. Wow. That's a great idea. In television, you're, you can make, do a television show because it'll, it's a career move, you know? It'll show people you can do this kind of material because it's only one episode, you know? A movie, you, can ne you will suffer on that, you know? And that was partially also one of the reasons I did Heartbeat because I was offered it. You know, yeah. and I did this because I was offered it. And when I saw Jackie Mason in New York on uh, doing a show, we, they flew us on the Warner jet to New York City. We met with Jackie Mason. He was hilarious in the show, and I stayed the next night to watch it again, right, and to hang out with Jackie. And I came back and I had a meeting the next week. And basically, after that first night, we had a gold picture. Mark Cann said, yes, everyone wanted to make Caddyshack 2 with Jackie Mason. So I watched him again, and I noticed that he, some things about him. And I went to John Peters, and I said, John, he doesn't connect with the audience. He's like, he's a monologue. He doesn't look at anyone when he's talking. I don't know if he can work off of people as an actor. And he said, oh, look at Rodney. Rodney did it. And I said, I just have real doubts about this guy. There's an anger in him, you know, <laughs> that's not that funny. And because I had now spent one-on-one -on -one time with him, right? And John 
said, hey, don't be a wise ass. Don't turn a go picture into a development deal. Uh. So I shut up and went along with it, and the movie, you know, sucks. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's another one I kind of, I'm kind of a fan of, you know. But, but I, I totally understand it. It's not funny. What's yeah, that? Randy's funny. Randy Quaid is funny. Yes, he is. It, He's know? very funny. You know, and and Robert Stack is funny. Yeah. But but Jackie is not funny at all. <laughs> and the thing about Jackie is also he couldn't remember his lines. He didn't know. So if you were trying to do comedy in a master, it didn't happen because he didn't. He couldn't pick up the cues. See, I was wait till everyone stopped talking. Oh, oh it's my line. Then he talked. And he would never look at anyone. He wouldn't listen to other people. He's a monologuist. Wow. So, so well, you had to cut into him every time he had a line, basically. Right. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And Chevy was a monster. You know, it was just horrible. Dan was really fun to be around. I had a really good time with Dan Aykroyd. Uh, he did a very weird voice in the movie, and that was a bad idea, you know. <laughs> I, um, I still remember that. that. I thought it was an odd yeah. choice, but I, you know, I think yeah, I'm really forgiving... With a lot yeah. of stuff, and I really found it. Uh, there's something in really entertaining about it. I still watch it. Um, well, you know. Anyway, when the movie came out, it was a flop, and it got awful reviews. It got reviews as bad as Heartbeats. And essentially, I went into therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I'm you sorry, know? Alan. I don't mean to d- dredge up all this. It's okay. I mean, I'm <laughs> serious. Know? I went into therapy, and also because Moonlighting, which had been good to me, but became so difficult to make because of. Glenn Karen left, and then Bruce and Sybil were at each other, and Bruce had become a big movie star, you know. So I just said, you know what? Go back to television. (laughs) So I went back and worked with Bruce Paltrow, and I did Tangers, and then I think I did Shannon's Deal. I was going to ask you about that. Now, how did that come to be? Like, you've got John Sayles as one of the creators of the show, right? Yes, and the guy who produced it, Stan Rogo, just called me out of the blue. Uh, and talked about it, and I came in, and I got, he gave me the, you know, I guess I had a pretty good reputation in television, and Stan needed someone and uh, to direct these episodes, and Stan and I got along really well, and he kind of offered me a job as, uh, he tried to give me a job to sort of be the director who was going to be there all the time, you know, the producing director, and it didn't quite get there in the first season, and somewhere in there, I think I also, I don't remember if Capital News was before that or after that, I think it was before that. Yes, it was. The Capital News, which was a big pilot uh, about newspapers with David Milch. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that one, too. Now, did you have a lot of input? I, we'll come back to Shannon's deal, because I want to talk about that. But Capital News, was that something you had a lot of input on? You know, were you gonna well, try it, was a, it was a pilot season, and David Milch was doing a pilot, and he was at ICM, and I was at ICM, and I went and had a meeting. You know, I'd done Moonlighting. I had Emmy nomination, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I met with David, and, you know... We started to make it. Now, he and I, um, David's really a genius, and I know what he wants to do, but we, it was just a matter of creative chemistry. I did the best job I could for him, and the show got sold, but we never really connected creatively. There was always a lot of meetings to make to try to get us to understand each other, you know? And it wasn't until I saw... The NYPD Blue Pilot, which is like three or four years later, that I really understood what David needed to make his material work. I saw how Greg Hoblet had directed that pilot, and I realized that 
how I didn't understand David and David didn't, didn't understand me and, and how it, why it didn't work, you know. I mean, the show was not bad, you know. Um, and it sold and it went, you know, it did got some nice reviews and it was kind of a big sprawling, it was like all the President's Men kind of TV show. Cool. Uh, but I don't think if you ask David that what he thought that he would say that was my best work. It was, he had a partner, creative partner, who was a real newspaper guy, and we kept bumping up against fiction and reality, you know? And, for instance, there was a huge fight over the fact that when I went to Washington, D.C. to shoot some stuff for the title sequence, I laid out this character is driving into Washington, D.C., and you'll see how, how, what I mean, like creatively understand each other, okay? And she's kind of doesn't know her way around Washington. She's trying to get to work the first day or apartment or something. And um, we, I shot it so we had the best views of Washington, D.C., you know? And I, when I cut it together, the other writer-producer on the show, who's helped create it, was furious. He said, you can't get... To where the point, the you know that point Washington with if you drive this route, it makes no sense. Oh. And it was like, well, who knows that? <laughs> and he said, well, the people in Washington who know all about newspapers. And so it was one of those things. And David was pissed off at me because now he saw what I did and he didn't like that either. You know, he, so he felt the same way about that kind of stuff. That logic well, he, made he, sense because now it was attention. It was just one more thing for the aggravated. Oh, I see. Okay, wow. You know? Man. And so, things like that, you know. Uh, but she's looking at the map anyway, you know. She doesn't know where she's going. Yeah. That's all we've been left out of, you know. Well... That's that's really unfortunate. I mean, that's got to be, and, and it's something I don't think about as much. But when you talk about it, I'm like, wow. How does how does this this must happen all the time? These creative differences. Yeah. I mean, you hear about this yeah. stuff, and how difficult that must be. And then just this idea of authorship, and you know, for for TV, for movies, or whatever. I mean, obviously, you always think about a lot of people collaborating, but just the fact that like two creative people see eye to eye or not, like how much that can affect the outcome of a, a show or a movie. I mean, it's just yeah. crazy that, you know, uh, that it's, it's so, it must be so difficult. I can't even imagine. Well, it's a, television is a team sport. And you really have to understand your role in it. And the guys who are the executive producers of a TV show, the ones that really succeed, are able to do like a great, basketball player because they're they're able to rebound pass and score you know what I mean mm -hmm. that is they at the last minute they're the ones who want to sink that three seconds the shot with three seconds to go because they have the confidence so they're the ones who know who to pass it to and that's a real gift and I will luckily work with a lot of people who are good at that and I remember when Glenn Karen had confronted me about a scene that I had shot and he was pissed off because I had changed the blocking for what, how it was scripted. And he said, by the way, don't ever do that without calling me that you're going to change it, you know. And he said, and especially I'm pissed off because the way you did it was better. And he laughed, you know. <laughs> but I understood what he meant. You know, he wrote it a certain way, and I should respect that, yeah. you know. Wow. And in television, the writer is the king, you know, and the director gains their confidence so that, you know, and soon at a certain point, he has enough of their confidence so that he can put his input in. 
And I think one of the reasons I've been so successful in television is that you know how people can can do accents and and do impressions and mimic things. Yeah. Vocally, I can do it visually. <laughs> That is, if I go and do an episode of St. Elsewhere, I can figure out and ask the questions how to do the shots and make it look like St. Elsewhere. And that's no small thing. Yeah. And make the choices how the camera moves so it looks like their show from the first day on the show, which is why I kept getting jobs after the first day's dailies. Because I was going, oh, it looks just like our show, you know? So um, what's, what's your process like as far as getting that down? Do you just have a great memory for that stuff? You look at an episode and you can remember? you just ask the right questions or you understand it enough technically to reduplicate it. Gotcha. You know? Gotcha. And so what I was doing was storing up all these different styles of shooting a show. And I was starting to come to a conclusion in television that, in a way, I was like a... I was like a... Uh, director on the staff of Warner Brothers in the 30s and 40s. And I would be, if I was, one week I'd be doing a Western with Errol Flint, right? <laughs> well, there's a style to doing a Western, you know? So there's a style to St. Elsewhere. And next week I'll be doing a melodrama, you know, with Humphrey Bogart. And there's a style to that, and that's the, there's a style to Moonlighting. So I would just adapt to all those different styles. See, that's a really cool way to look at it. That's really neat. And, and by doing so, I learned those styles. Yeah, and so that's why I was successful in television. And if you, and very quickly I got hired back a lot because, and also I started noticing that they liked what I was doing about my creativity, and they often would write scenes that played to my strengths. On Saint Elsewhere, they approached me about an episode. I sent gave them a, a magazine article, a newspaper article, because a box had opened up in Federal Express in Atlanta, and all these body parts fell out. Whoa. And I thought, well, this is a funny idea. And they found <laughs> out there was in hospitals, people were stealing body parts and selling them, you know, <laughs> wow. um, or to different medical schools. So I gave them that article, and so they, they wrote this episode, and they gave me the, the script to do. You know, and it had a black humor in it that someone has stolen the head of one of the bodies. And the entire show, it's on a cardboard box, and you keep seeing it around the hospital, and no one knows where it is. Oh, that's good. You know? And, you know, is, that episode, they, is that episode on DVD, just out of curiosity? Not yet. Not yet, not okay. Yet. okay. And then they did one called, uh, about one of the characters was addicted to chocolate. <laughs> and we treated the chocolate as if it was heroin or cocaine. Oh, like, all the good. dialogue sounds like it's cocaine. But it's about chocolate, you know. It just gets really fat. Um, and they, at the end of the third act, they find her in the in the bathroom with a pastry gun in her mouth, OD, you know. That was crazy. But they knew that I could do that kind of comedy, you know, yeah. and make it real. Because I learned my lessons really well from people like Glenn Karen on St. Elsewhere, how to be seamless in that transition from comedy yeah. to drama. Yeah. So anyway, that brings us to... Um, so I didn't end up staying with Capital News. I ended up getting this call from San Diego, and I went on uh, Shannon's deal. And the first Shannon's deal that I did was uh, Words and Music, which had Iggy Pop in it. Oh, wow. And Anya Tucker and Crosby. And, you know, it was turned out really, really good. And I did another one, and Stan wanted me to stay with the show, but then I got did a pilot. I did the Parenthood pilot with Ron Howard, and I became a producer on that. And then from there, Stan asked me to come back to Shannon's Deal and be a producer on that show. So that's what I did. So that's how. And Shannon's Deal was a show I had a lot of 
Sympathy for. I really loved the actors on it, and that was really at that period. Then I became the role that I am still today, which is the producer director on television shows. And and how do you like? How do you adapt your uh, bringing your energy or creativity to a show from that position? How does that work? Well, you kind of set the style for the series, and you help hire all the directors and you talk to them about doing the style for the series and you make sure that every department is all you just try and the thing that that, that you if you watch and you know you can tell now when you watch any TV show because now it's everywhere you can tell what show it is instantly yeah. you know they all have a very distinctive style and that kind of thing was started by guys like Greg Hoblet on NYPD Blue and on LA Law you know and Mark Tinker on Teen Elsewhere, and different shows where once the Bob Butler, who did the pilot for Moonlighting, you know, uh, all these really good directors did a pilot which had a very distinctive, you know, self-style and that stood above your average TV show. Because it wasn't until after those shows that shows started really being distinctive, you know. Uh, And that became, now every pilot, try to have a distinctive look and style. It's become the way the television is made. And then the idea is to continue that style throughout. And someone has to be responsible for the look and sound and editing of the show, and that's my job. Yeah. So, so, so I work hand-in-hand with the executive producer-writer, and we have to come to a creative, um, creative symbiosis, you know, so that I respect their writing and try to, once we decide what the show is, make sure it continues to be that week in, week out. Because television is it's such a devourer of material. And there's different directors each week that you have to give it consistency. And that's what makes a show work for an audience. So now, with and with that's, sorry, that's what I do. So, in fact, so that's what I'm doing on my new show. What, what is what's your new show? It's called Hellcats. Hellcats. Oh, I haven't heard about this. Yeah. Tell me about it. It was just announced this week. Uh, it's we we shot the pilot, and it's going to be on the CW on Wednesday nights at nine in the fall. Cool. And it's a musical about competitive collegiate cheerleaders. Oh, nice. Oh, that yeah. sounds really cool. Yeah, it's got Ashley Tisdale in it, and. Um, Ali Machalka, and it's really funny, and it's really good. It's a real musical. Now, who, did you do the pilot, or how are you, who directed no, I directed the pilot. Oh, excellent. I just finished it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that sounds really fact, cool. All, all weekend, I'm looking at director's reels uh, to make a list of directors to hire for the show. That's really cool. So so that'll be this fall, you said? Yeah. And now, when you were coming up or sort of working on this pilot, like what kind of influences did you have you know, f- for you? On 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 uh, Hellcats, Hellcats. yeah. Uh, the first movie of Fame, which had a nice reality to it, yeah, and a sense of how hard, what hard, be trying to be an artist or a dancer and stuff, or, or an actor, and, and is hard work. And cheerleaders are athletes, and what it so that was only part of that, and also like all that jazz, the dancer's life. Cool. And the discipline it takes and the heart. So those were the two big influences so far. So it's much more serious and not like a bring it on kind of thing? More. Well, it has elements of bring it on because bring it on did a 
good job in showing how cheers are done. Yeah. But it's not one of those. Bring it on is like Mean Girls with cheerleading. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> yeah. Right, so mean Girls is a really great movie. I agree. I agree. Um, well, that's really cool. I'm I'm excited to check that out. I'm I'm excited to, whenever I see your name. You know, I get really excited. I remember when I first started watching Heroes, and I didn't know that you were involved because for whatever reason I I hadn't paid attention or whatever. But I saw your name come up, and I got I got so excited. I was telling my wife, I'm like, it's Alan Arkish. It's you know, and, and and she was just like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, let's just sit and watch. And you know, we really liked the show and. I was really excited that you were involved with it. That made it like cooler for me. And that was a, that was a case where we we designed a real specific look for that show. That show had problems with storytelling after season one, but the look and the feel and the sound of that show were like nothing else on television. Yeah, no, and it was I, captivating. Yeah, you know, I think that's what people took away from that show was how special it. it visually it was and sound wise you know and how it portrayed the powers of, of the different characters yeah no it was a really I mean that first season especially was really great and I I was selling yeah. it to a lot of people whenever I uh, you know it was Monday or Tuesday or whenever it was on you know I'd ask people about it and it was definitely a show that how does that how does a show like that run into problems with the storytelling like you said like what how does that originate is it that creative friction or, or well, yeah yeah, I mean, while it's writing staff and you're trying to get it. But the, the thing that made the show work in that first season was the tension between people with superpowers are really just regular people. And when it had that creative tension between the, the writers who believed in superpowers and the writers who believed in telling stories about regular people, when the regular people writers were were leading the way, the show worked really well, you know, because with a nice tension between superpowers and real life, you know, stories, because, and that's what made it so special, and that's what made it so people can relate to it, when all of a sudden we started only dealing with superpowers and a world where superpowers were the stock and trade, we got lost. Yeah, yeah. And then it became a repetitive thing, like not like life, where different things happen to you. you know? gotcha. gotcha. Anyway, well, yeah, that's cool. But I'm I'm really excited about Hellcats. I look forward to um, this fall when that comes on. That'll be on the DVR for sure. Um, yep. Let me jump back to one <clears throat> more of your TV movies, and then I have a whole bunch of sort of film related questions I wanted to go through. Sure. Is that cool? I mean, is that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, so I'm a big fan of Elvis meets Nixon. I think it's I a real. I think that I wish it was on DVD. I'm I'm really bummed out about that, but it's I, one of the best things I've ever done. In fact, when I got the script for it, um, I got halfway through the script, and I was at the scene where Elvis is on the airplane eating ice cream with the little kid, <laughs> and the little kid says, "I miss my mom," and Elvis says, "Me too." <laughs> and they sit for a second, and Elvis says, "Do you want to get some more ice cream?" And the kid goes, "Yeah." I called my agent and said, I have to do this movie. I haven't even finished it yet. I haven't even met Nick. Elvis hasn't met Nixon. I'm telling you, this is for me. And it was, I had a meeting and I just had to do it. I loved it. And, you know, it was on Showtime and somewhere along the way, Showtime messed up the distribution deal on, on VHS. And they were offered a deal, I think, early on to be distributed by the people who distributed all the real Elvis movies. So you would have had fun in Acapulco, clam bake, and Elvis meets Nixon in the same rack. Oh, nice. <laughs> I know, but they didn't do it. Anyway, 
What's, I love that movie. What's the as far as the script like? How is that? All true. It's all, no, is it? It's it's an amalgamation. It's not. It's all kinds it's of. It's an amalgamation of events, but essentially, with the exception of a couple of the characters, like the hippie on the street, that <laughs> didn't really specifically happen. But stuff like that, people happen. That's what that character said, you know. But the sort of arc of that weekend is pretty accurate. Wow. We took things from other years. Like, Elvis did go out on Sunset Strip and was not recognized. But it didn't happen that weekend. It actually happened when he was in L.A. filming the famous TV special. Oh, wow. So that really did happen, but not like that, you know. That's cool. Um, that's, wow. That's, like that's... going to the, the letter to the White House, the meeting the soldier on the airplane, the getting freaked out in the hotel room when he was all alone, uh, the flying to L.A. in that weekend, the storming out of Graceland. The letter that got to Haldeman that got him the meeting with Nixon, all that is true. Wow. <laughs> so like, the content of the letter true. But nobody really knows what went on in that meeting. So they might have sung My Way Together, but we don't know. <laughs> sure. I like to I like to think that they did. <laughs> I think the probably of all the things I've ever directed, that scene where Elvis and him are together, Elvis and Nixon and they sing My Way. It's got to be in my top five. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I mean, that's another one. I've had my VHS for a long time, and I've loaned it out many a time um, because it's just such an interesting, fun movie. I, I, yeah. Well, that's great. That's really cool to know because I'm watching it, and I'm just like, it's one of those where you're just like, I mean, this is really Elvis. How much is this is true? You know, yeah. he seems totally nuts. <laughs> this is really I know. Crazy. I, wish, I really wish someone did, would distribute on DVD because every time I've shown it to people, uh, they just love it. Yeah. Do you know? Do you have a thirty-five print of it or something like that? No, I've got a VHS copy of it. That's it. Okay. I was curious. Um, all right. Well, let me jump into my my film questions for you. Um, let's see. I've got a few of them here. Like, well, I'll start with a pretty broad one. What are some of your earliest film memories? Well, the first movie I ever saw was Peter Pan, the Disney Peter Pan, and I saw it at the Roxy Theater in New York City with my mom. Uh, she took me into the city to see it. I wasn't yet in school, so I was under five years old. And it was, I remember it being a really cold day and a long, long line. Now, the Roxy was a giant theater like Radio City Music Hall. And um, we couldn't, and we had to wait. We were there at the wrong time, and she wanted to go home and go another day. And I looked, I had no idea what was inside that place, right? But I looked at the long line, and I said, no, I practically cried. We have to go in, you know? Because I knew something special. So we went and we had lunch and we went to a later show and it, and it was, a, they had a live show. I remember they had trained bears on the stage, oh, ice wow. skating. At least that's in my memory. <laughs> um, they had one of those Disney uh, natural um, uh, animal shorts, you know. Remember they had those Disney shorts like yeah. the living desert and all that? Okay, I yeah. Think this, one was, this one was called Bear Country. <laughs> and then came Peter Pan, which I absolutely adored. I mean, beyond. I never wanted to leave that theater, and in some ways, I never have. <laughs> uh, and so I was so enthralled of it that, like, a couple of weeks later, my mother took me to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which so freaked me out. I had to be carried from the theater screaming, and we got a block away, and I insisted we go back to see how it turned out. <laughs> um, but I guess I was hooked. I mean, I remember also an early movie going to see that left a big impression on me was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, 
which I went with my Uncle Joe, um, who was going to take me to summer camp the next day. And so he took me to the movies that night, and I was just knocked out by the movie and by the fact that these seven brothers all wore, each one wore a different color shirt and stuff. <laughs> I don't know, these things just stuck with me. In fact, in fame, I did a dance number that's an homage to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers because nice. nice. I like that movie so much. Um, I used to love Jerry Lewis movies. Oh, me too. Just beyond. And I used to go all the time with my grandfather to see Jerry Lewis movies because he loved them also. I said, my grandfather used to like to call Jerry Lewis by his real name, Jerry Levitch. <laughs> so he'd always say, let's go see a Jerry Levitch movie. Um, and, I, and something that ended up reverberating for me was I went and saw Rio Bravo when I was a kid. Oh. And I that was a case where I loved that movie so much, and I also loved The Horse Soldiers. Oh. And it was when I got to film school and I started learning about who directed these movies, it was like this revelation moment that, oh, no wonder it's so good. Howard Hawks yeah. and John Ford. It was like, there was, that, it was that bell went off in my head that that's why I was so crazy about those movies when I was a kid, because they were really good movies, even though they were just entertaining movies that I saw in a matinee at the Lee Theater. You know, yeah, and I distinctly remember going to see Lawrence of Arabia with my parents. Uh, it might have been for my birthday. It might have been we went into the New York City. We saw it at one of those big, you know, movie houses in its first release, and it just, you know, blew me away. I just adored it. And then the movie that changed my life was Hard Day's Night. Yeah, but if you go to yeah, if you go to Trailers from Hell, you'll hear my rap on Hard Day's Night. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about your Trailers from Hell. That's a really great you know, story about <clears throat> you seeing that movie and seeing the, I can't remember which scene it is, but talking about the camera starting to move to yeah, dance. Yeah, I started dancing and I should have known better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great... I've got a, good, I've got a real good trailer from hell coming up um, on Get on uh, Eat My, not me, my death, on Death Sport. Oh, very cool. I was going to ask you actually what or some of the, do you have any others that are coming up we should look for? Uh, help. Oh, cool. And, and Oh Lucky Man. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Are you going to do... You didn't do If yet, did you? Uh, we can't find a trailer for If. Ah. Uh, and uh, If is one I would definitely want to do because it's a very important movie to me. Yeah, I mean... But, uh, I, well, I've tried to do If before, but we can't find the trailer for it. Bummer. Well, I hope you guys can find it because I know that you've said that obviously it's, it's it's got some influence on Rock and Roll. Like, I've heard Rock and Roll High School is... But the Rock and Roll High School is If and Zero for Conduct. Oh, Zero for Conduct. I didn't know that. That's cool. That makes sense. Okay. But, I mean, I also heard, like, Frank Tashlin and Hard Day's Night. and Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, the Tashlin stuff. It was cool watching it again, like, because I had seen it. Gosh, Rock and Roll High School I'm talking about. I had seen it uh, within the past maybe three years, but um, for whatever reason, having just read interviews with you and and, and and having the Tashlin in mind, and I just watched The Girl Can't Help It again this week. Um uh. You know, which is yeah, you can see. I mean, someone somewhere should do a mashup of "I Want You Around" and, and uh, "Cry Me a River." It would be hilarious. Yeah, I was totally seeing that. I'm like, this is so cool. And then for me, like, yeah, it, you can see it's complete homage. It's almost it's, it's shot for shot. <laughs> I love that stuff. I just think that's so neat. You know, to see this this crazy yeah. new world picture that has this its roots in these older films. Ah, oh, just I just love that about it. Anyway, sorry. Um, let, let me. Uh, you've sort of answered this question for me at one point, but I'm I'm sure that a lot of people would love to hear your answer. Um, can you talk about a few films you m like most want to see on DVD but haven't shown up yet? Well, 
you know what? So many movies have shown up. <laughs> it's like every time I think of something, oh, they'll put it out, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I'm a huge fan of Frank Borzaghi, you know? And then they Fox, when they put out that Borzaghi box set, you know? So that was great to have that. Now, does that have but, the ones that you you had mentioned to me? The, um... Yeah. It has Seventh Heaven on it. And and, um, and then I found, then there was that movie, and then there's a movie by George Cukor called The Actress that I adore. Uh, uh, and that came out archives, on that yeah. Warner Archives. That was, so I bought that the first day, you know, that... Um, so they actually are putting them out there's like a couple others like uh, Little Man What Now and um, oh, the, oh, which isn't available but it runs on TCM so there isn't that much stuff that's not available anymore I mean the big one for me was the Tammy show and it just came out so. yeah how's that DVD by the way I haven't seen it yet great that's oh, great cool. I gotta get that uh, it was like Street Angel with another one that now it's out so the ones I really wish would come out on DVD are Get Crazy and Elvis <laughs> Beats the Knicks. And yes. that's my own movie. And I, I would love, love it. If, I would love it if they went back and they did a nice version of The Temptations. Oh, I yeah. Mean, the, DVD, the DVD is very good. The sound is very good. But I'd love to do one with, uh, you know, commentaries and special features. Do you think that might happen? or? Uh, no one has ever approached me about it, but... You know, I think it would be a really popular thing because God knows it plays enough on VH1. Yeah, yeah, all the time. It's on every other week. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, what's the name of the Borzaghi movie with Charles Boyer and... Um... Oh, uh, History is Made at Night. That's yes. one. That's one I wish was out on DVD. Yeah, you had told me about that, and I went and saw that great with, movie. Yeah, with my wife, and oh, man, did we love that movie. That is such a great Isn't film. Isn't that a terrific movie? So good. It's, it's a love story, but in a way, it's also like one of those disaster movies because the ocean liner gets threatened. Yeah, yeah, it's, and I love disaster. I think that's part of the reason it, it got me too. Is I love yeah. disaster movies. But what's her name? What's the name of the actress in it? Um, Jean Oster. Yes, and she is fantastic. Oh, Maybe as good as I've ever seen her in that movie. Yeah. You know? Well, I think her great for me. I love Only Angels Have Wings. That to me is like one of the great movies. But yeah, no, I love the movie and all the comic stuff with the great Cesar is really good. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, all right, let me. I've, I'm taking up so much of your time. I want to get through these so I don't waste your whole Saturday. Um, can you? Do you have any holy? I guess you've already sort of covered this question. It's like Holy Grail movies that you really want to see but haven't seen. Is there anything out there for you or not really? Not, not too much yeah. left, you know. <laughs> I figured as much. Film up and I, you know, one of the things that my success as a, you know, on television has allowed me to do is I go out and buy any DVD I want. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not someone who has fancy cars, but if it's, a, if it's an album or, or a movie, I will go out and do it. Now, when my series got picked up, I went right online. I got myself the Busby Berkeley box. Uh, <laughs> A John Wayne, Joan Crawford movie that uh, Quentin Tarantino had recommended. Which was and, what? Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> now you got me. Gotta go find the name of it. Well, it's all right. We can... a, a movie that was a big influence on him, A Reunion in France. Oh, wow. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I never heard of it either. I'm going to check that out. Now that's on you DVD? Know, yeah, if Quentin recommends it, I buy it. <laughs> that's cool, yeah. I, I... If I read an article, Jonathan Demme says this is a good album, I go and buy the album. Yeah, I'm the same way, and actually, I'm the same way with you. Like when I hear that you're a fan of a movie, I do the same thing uh, as as with those two guys. Also, I, I just got the African Queen. I mean, 
Uh, I've got this box I'm looking through of um, Louis Malle movies. I just watched uh, Murmur of the Heart again. Boy, was that great. Oh, that's a fantastic... And, and then there's the, the stuff I buy because I think, well, I really should catch up on all my silent Renoir movies. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> it's been sitting here. i got to get into that one. <laughs> so do you just have like a room full of DVDs? Yes. <laughs> nice. And, and thousands of albums and, and CDs. Oh, see, that's a room I'd love to see a picture of. That's that's really neat. Um, okay, so what's your favorite, like, if you have one, a favorite Hollywood legend, you know, something that may or may not be true? My favorite Hollywood legend story is John Ford at the DGA standing up to Cecil B. Commit. You know, the one where he said, everyone knows who I am. I'm John Ford. I make westerns. You know? <laughs> I love and, that. Now, that. That famous story where he said, Cecil, you're a, you're a great director, but you're full of shit. <laughs> The whole, the whole thing about the McCarthy ear, ear, hearings. So, you know, I can't tell it very well, but if you go to, um, it's done really well in Peter Bogdanovich's um, movie called Directed by John Ford. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he does, a, he tells that story particularly well. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to go, I, I think I have that movie. I think I have Directed by John Ford, but I, I got Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, the other one, I've, I've like, I've read a lot about those the special relationship between George Cooper and Catherine Hepburn, you know, what close friends they are. So I think that's kind of really interesting, you know. Uh, you know what? Um, and also, it's like, I'm reading this book, like, it's these things happen. This is not like a favorite one, but it's like one of these things where you go, oh, my God. I'm reading this um, book about David Lean by Kevin Brownlow, which has been out for a while. Um, and it's a big book, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's this throwaway sentence in it, which... Like last night floored me. Uh, David Lean has come to Hollywood for the Oscars for Lawrence of Arabia, right? So he's here for a while. And he and Catherine Hepburn really hit it off on summertime, so he spent a lot of time with her and Spencer Tracy, and they were friends and so forth. And just casually in passing, Catherine Hepburn drove him to the airport. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and... There you go. Does that say it all? Wow. Catherine Hepburn gave David Lean a lift to the airport. That's you know? so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> um, um, speaking of legends, I read an interview where you were talking about you and Jerry Garcia used to hang out, and yeah. he would come over to your apartment and watch movies. And, yes, he did. And what did you guys like watch? Was he just he was a big film buff, wasn't he? Yeah, he's a huge film buff. He had never seen Hell's a Poppin'. Oh, so uh, we watched Hell's a Poppin' together. Oh, cool. Which, which he loved. We watched The Trip, which he did not like. <laughs> uh, we watched Eight and a Half, which he loved. He had seen, oh. you know. Uh, Only Angels Have Wings. Um, I can't remember what else we saw, but uh-huh. we... You know. That's really, really cool. See, that's the kind of stuff I just loved it. I was just, when you said that I, right away, I, saw, I heard, the, you were talking about how you didn't hang out with a lot of music uh, stars, but like at a show or whatever, but sometimes you would, something like that would happen where Jerry would come over right, and you'd yeah, watch movies. Because they were in town mixing their movie and stuff like that. So. That's really cool. Um, okay, so if you could have lunch with any actor or director not alive, I know this is a, sh- a shitty question, but. That's okay, you know. Uh, on Sunset Boulevard, right around the Chateau Marmont, there's a Japanese restaurant. It's changed. It's right at that big curve. Okay. Sunset. It's right across from what a strip club. That location was where Preston Sturges opened his restaurant, oh. where he, where he lost all his money. And in the seventies, 
It was a Japanese restaurant called Imperial Gardens, I think. And I used to eat sushi there a lot. Spielberg used to go there, too. Um, not that I knew him, but, you know, I'd see him there. Uh, I would like to have lunch at that restaurant with Preston Sturges because he picked up the bill for anyone he liked. He also installed, if you look at any biographies, installed TV cameras in there, first to broadcast television shows. He lost all his money, so it'd be fun to go there. Oh, wow, um, that's so cool. I'd really like to have lunch, and here's who I'd like to have at lunch. I'd like to have Hawks and Captain Hepburn together, you know, and George Cooker and definitely Ruth Gordon. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe Hawks and Captain Hepburn or Hawks and Cary Grant. But another, you know what would be fun? Hawks and Victor Fleming, because they were good friends. I didn't know that. Yeah, they were very good friends. It's all in that Victor Fleming book. So that would be a good lunch. Victor Fleming's and Howard Hawks. The other great lunch would be Catherine Hepburn with George Cooker and Ruth Gordon and, and Garson Kane because they were all good friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So that would be fun. Very cool uh, picks. Very cool picks. So the movie poster question. I do have movie posters, not a lot of them. Uh, it has to be a movie that I liked, that I, I've seen. And it has to be a poster where I think the poster itself is pretty much expressive of what the movie is. I have certain rules. Uh, <laughs> oh, cool. So I really like the Saul Bass posters. So oh, yeah. I have Exodus poster. I've got that. I've got Anatomy for Murder. Um, I love poster for the women because I like the movie very, very much. And the poster is a really beautiful representation of the main character. So I got that one. Cool. That's an I've original? What? That's an original of the women? That's an original. It cost me a lot of money. Very I nice. think I, the day that I bid on it, I think every gay decorator in Hollywood wanted that one. <laughs> Um, and I, 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 no, I'm not putting you know down, but it, it was funny. All of a sudden, you know, it had been listed for eight hundred dollars, and all of a sudden, we're like bidding at three times that amount. Wow, wow. Uh, T Men. I have got the T Men poster because I love that movie. That's cool. And a movie that probably I've referenced, and I've learned more about directing television shows from that movie than any other, which is maybe written on the wind. Oh, you got a poster for that. Great. Yeah, and you know, the storytelling of Cirque and his ability to up the ante from scene to scene was a huge influence on The Temptations uh, and the storytelling in that movie. That's really cool. He's awesome. I love Douglas Cirque. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> okay, my favorite made-for-TV movies. Yes. That was tough because I don't remember them that well. Yeah. When I see them. But there was one in the 70s I just wanted to bring up I thought was fantastic. It was an adaptation of, uh, oh, jeez. Uh, it was, oh, he wrote the book Couples. Um, oh, John Updike. And it was called Too Far to Go. Okay. It had Blythe Danner and Michael Moriarty in it. Ooh, it was like a it. very faithful adaptation of his book. Of that. You know, I watch a bunch of the HBO ones and I enjoy some Showtime ones. Uh, something like what NBC was doing some of the better Hallmark ones. Um, the Merlin one was good with Marty Short. Cool. I haven't seen that. All right. You know, um, and I thought some of the Stephen King ones were pretty good. Yeah. Cool, cool. My favorite film reference books, it begins and ends with the Andrew Sarris book. Oh, very cool. <laughs> you know, the American Cinema, I still have my copy that I bought in film school. It's a cave. The whole cover is handed by tape. Uh, <laughs> the book is falling apart, but it will never leave me. I also love Manny Farber's books. You know, 
Negative Space, and his essay on, um, what's it called, termite uh, movies and white elephants and so forth, Ooh. his philosophy on that has been something I've followed in my television directing. Um, and uh, I like David Thompson's books a lot. So I use those as references a lot. Very cool. And obviously, Truffaut Hitchcock, yeah. you know, which I used extensively, you know, um, to sort of copy sequences from and learn how things were done. You know, and I really enjoyed reading Andre Bazin. Um, not so much. I, and I don't read that much film criticism anymore, but I do read some film bias. I really liked the Vika Fleming book recently. I love Todd McCarthy's book on Howard Hawks. I yeah. think that's a great book. Yes, that's, everybody should have that. Go, yeah, because, you know, I've seen all the Hawks movies so many times. But so when I go back and I just saw a Tiger Shark recently, I went back and read what um, uh, Todd wrote, writ, written about Tiger Shark. It was really interesting to read that and watch the movie because I bought that on movie on the Warner Archives. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Those are all. Oh, and Joe McBride's book on John Ford is terrific. Who, I'm sorry, who wrote it? Joe Joe McBride's book on John. Yes. Ford. Yeah, naming all books that friends of mine wrote. That's that's awesome. No, I mean you obviously clearly read a lot about movies, whether it be bios or whatever. Yeah. Which is really neat. Um, yeah, like that scene in Day for Night, which your phone got all those books. Yeah, yeah. Well, I should I should probably let you go, Alan. I really really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's You're been, welcome, Brian. It's been an honor. It has been an honor. So. Well, just let me know when it's wherever it's going to be. I'll, it'll okay? post on this website. I'll send you a link. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. Okay, I'll, bye. Bye, Alan. Thanks for listening. You can find The Gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call The Gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email The Gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.